Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Call for the weeping mothers, the lost fathers, and the forsaken children, and let them come quickly. For a voice of crying is heard out of Zion. For we are greatly confused. For death has come into our ghettos. To cut off the young men and women from the streets of Philadelphia, New York, L.A., Georgia, Ohio, Florida, Mississippi, and throughout America, South America, the Caribbean islands, Africa, Asia, and all over the world. So return unto me, thus saith Yah, and I will return unto you, O my people. Welcome listeners to Time for an Awakening on the Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural 
perspective we find this program necessary because Hosea 4 6 states my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge but we as a people can turn this around Proverbs 4 7 states wisdom is the principal thing therefore get wisdom and with all that getting get an understanding again welcome to the program this evening with your host brother Elliot brother Reggie and brother Ralph the number to reach us this evening to join the conversation is 215-253-7263. It's 215-253-7263. The listen-only line. If you don't have computer access, access to a smartphone, an iPad, a BlackBerry, or any other device, is 559-726-1300. That's 559-726-1300. Thirteen hundred, and that access code is nine five eight five nine zero and pound. Again, that access code is nine five eight five nine zero and the pound sign. You can listen to us streaming live at two locations. You can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. That's www blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening or if you have your device uh, the TuneIn app is usually on it or you can download the TuneIn app for free on your smartphone, your iPad uh, your Blackberry, any other device just go to the TuneIn app, download it and in the search engine type in time for an awakening there you'll see the icon and you can listen live on your your iPad, your, your device, your Blackberry, your iPhone, or even in your car. That's Time for an Awakening with the app on TuneIn. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. That's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for Awakening also has a fan, fan page on Facebook. Just go to the Facebook search engine and type in Time for an Awakening. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by Brother Ridge. Before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's time for an awakening radio program with the fan page on Facebook. Tonight we'll be in conversation with some interesting guests with all the happenings going on in Cleveland, uh, centering around the uh, verdict of the uh, police that murdered Timothy Russell and Marissa Alexander. We'll be talking to some activists in Cleveland and also our special guest, News Talk 1490 and Cleveland talk show host. Brother Vince Robinson will be joining us in conversation this evening, and we'll be right back to get things started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com.
All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 215 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley antiquity to the present our people need to develop a new paradigm it's time for an awakening sundays 7 p.m with your hosts elliot and reggie welcome back to time for an awakening and uh brother reg is on well-deserved vacation and we don't have any community announcements today so we'll get right into our conversation this evening with our special guests News Talk 1490 in Cleveland's talk show host, Brother Vince Robinson, is with us this evening. Brother Vince. Yes, sir. How are you, sir? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? I'm glad to have you join us this evening on Time for an Awakening. Glad to be here. Uh, Brother Vince, uh, before we get started tonight with the, with the topic of, of our conversation, because there's a lot of things going on nationwide, but especially in Cleveland right about now, um, before we get started with things, tell us a little bit about uh, the talk show on uh, 1490 in, uh, in Cleveland. I, I understand that's a Kathy Hughes affiliate. But uh, tell us yes. a little bit about yes. your program, Brother Vince. Well, the program is called 360 Info Network, and it was a show that was created by brothers by the name of Lynn Hampton, also known as Hamptonio. Uh, he's an activist of sorts, and he's taken it upon himself to uh, create a celebration in Cleveland called Umoja, which is basically uh, Black History Month in June. So uh, this month we're kicking off the fifth anniversary of this particular uh, event uh, with the parade downtown Cleveland, which will feature uh, the Shaw High School Marching Band, Choctaw Indians, Tuskegee Airmen, um, and some other his, black historical figures as well as political figures that, you know, participate in parades and, and businesses and sorts uh, of that sort. And then uh, there will be a festival at Voinovich Park, which is the park that is directly behind the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum. Uh, Brother Hampton also happens to be the president of the Black Shield, which is a, a Cleveland uh, police patrolman's union for black officers. So uh, he was appointed as president last year, and he'll be coming up for re-election in, in the coming year. But the radio show is a show that's very similar to yours in that we deal with subjects that have to do uh, with matters related to the African-American community, 
we deal with intellectual conversations, we uh, talk about politics, and we uh, promote black business. So uh, that's a, a very brief uh, uh, background on the show. Well, Brother Vince, I, I know that your station is uh, probably similar to ours being the voice of the communities uh, in Cleveland. Talk about how, well, I, I listen, our people are basically the same all over, and the problems are common and similar. Mm-hmm. But talk about how the community is reacting to uh, the verdict of exonerating uh, the police of any wrongdoing, especially the murder charges uh, against Timothy Russell and Marissa Alexander. Talk about the, the aftermath of that, that verdict. Give us a little background. And, and give us a little background of the shooting uh, if some of our listeners are not fully aware of what transpired. Well, first of all, the, the shooting occurred a couple of years ago in November. Uh, there were two uh, people, uh, Timothy Russell uh, and Melissa Williams, and uh, the, the basic story is that they were somewhere in the vicinity of the Justice Center downtown when their car backfired, and it was mistaken for a gunshot. And somehow after that happened, uh, police pursued Uh, ensued, and when it was all said and done, there were 67 or so uh, police cruisers involved in the chase, over 100 officers involved, and 137 shots fired. Uh, The person who was just on trial for this particular incident, uh, a patrolman by the name of Michael Brelo, was said to have stood on the hood of the car firing directly into the cabin of the uh, car. Uh, so they found that these two subjects did not have weapons. I've heard them being characterized as being homeless uh, on, a, on a few different uh, reports that were, were made regarding the, the incident. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that the police response was what it was. Two people are dead, and literally no one has lost a job. Uh, there were some... Uh, there were some punitive measures enacted, and I just read yesterday that due to arbitration, the decisions to punish those particular officers were actually reversed. So at this point, no one has really been held accountable for what happened, and everyone has seen the injustice that was involved in that. You can't really justify taking someone's life when they never really imperiled you and so the reaction to it has been fairly mixed uh there are those in certain aspects of the community who probably feel that they got what they deserve based on the fact that they both allegedly had criminal records um you know the the black community is up in arms but you did not see the response that you saw in ferguson or baltimore in terms of you know, the, the widespread chaos and, and mayhem that ensued after certain decisions were made. So, uh, you know, there has been a lot of conversation about the timing of the verdict. Uh, it happened on the same day that the Cavs had a playoff game. It happened over a holiday weekend when I'm sure there was assumption that people would be in a celebratory mood and, you know, not really thinking about going out and, and walking the streets or doing anything crazy because you know they're they're in holiday weekend mode so yeah i think something uh, similar i think something similar happened around the time michael brown verdict was announced 
Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken. So, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yes. So there, there was um, an initial response that day. I just happened to have been out of town that day, so I wasn't as tuned in to what happened. But uh, to make a long story short, there, there was a, a, a small protest movement. There were parties that chose to go to certain areas of, of downtown where they knew that there would be patrons of restaurants or someone to receive the message that they want, wanted to give. And in the process of them staging what was supposed to have been a nonviolent uh, protest, uh, some type of act of violence ensued. Uh, there was there was some mention of a sign being thrown, and there was also mention that some of the patrons of the restaurants did not welcome uh, the uh, the protest that was taking place. Uh, so they said that some fights broke out, and then there was a very quick response to it. We were told uh, before the fact that the, uh, the Ohio National Guard was going to be present, uh, and there was no question that there was going to be a military present, present so that uh, any, any type of widespread mayhem would be dealt with, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, 70, 71 persons were arrested on, on that day, and they were processed over the weekend. Many of them had their arraignments on last Monday, and, uh, you know, that was that. Uh, the mayor, uh, in, in his foresight, met with a lot of community leaders and, uh, you know, did what he could to prevent something from happening. You know, we all know that the uh, Republican National Convention is going to be held here next year, and I think there is a, a very significant concern from the part of the, the uh, business community that they don't want anything to mar perception of the city uh, during that time. So, you know, provisions have been made to make sure that we don't have a repeat of the riots that took place uh, during the 60s in, in Glenville and Huff, and it was very apparent that, uh, you know, that they were going to do whatever they had to do to prevent that. So uh, that, that was a very small uh, response you know, in relation to what people expected to happen with, with this verdict. Robertson? You, you know, I, uh, yes. well, let's, let's take a call. Uh, we got a call coming in, uh, 216, area code. Uh, what's your name, brother? Where are you calling from? Uh, this is Councilman, Councilman Kevin Conwell, reaching out to you. How are you, sir? Busy uh, returning phone calls. I'm a little, I'm a little late. That's no problem. Uh, we have on the line with us uh, uh, Brother Vince uh, Robertson, who you know. And again, yes, know, state your name I, again, I brother. To, I used to play in his band. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're a fellow musician. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I used to play in his band. Okay. One of my best friends. All right. Uh, and, and give me your name again. I'm Council Member Kevin Conwell from the city of Cleveland. Okay. All right. Uh, brother Conwell, I, I'll let Vince jump in here because I'm not from Cleveland. I'm trying to get uh, the dynamic of what's going on. Uh, brother Vince, uh, d- uh Get involved here. Talk to uh, uh, the councilman, or is it former councilman? No, he's he's a current councilman, and uh, I invited him to call today because I thought he could give us some perspective uh, from the, the political uh, point of view. And to, to give you a little bit of backstory, uh, Councilman Conwell at one time was the chairman of the Public Safety Committee for the, the uh, Cleveland City Council. 
So he's had a working relationship with the mayor as well as the police unions in this city, and he's been very uh, connected to any type of reform, any type of review of police policies and procedures. So, uh, again, for that reason, I invited him to participate on the call. Yeah, for, for the matter of fact, um, for the past eight years, until what's this, 2015 until 2013, I was the safety chair from uh, I think 2005 until 2013. So all the policy um, uh, um, went to the chair. You know what's interesting? Can I say this? Uh, um, yes, go ahead. Robinson? You know, mm-hmm. after the Brillo verdict, I went riding through our neighborhood with, um, with some of my fatherhood guys because we, we didn't want to riot, as you just mentioned. Uh, uh, like the Huff riots and, and the Glenville riots, what we felt is that if we had another riot, it, that would be the tipping point that would um, push Glenville and Huff over. And... Um, I remember riding uh, some Lakeview, and I looked up, and I saw smoke coming out of the street, East 68th and Bless. And so we, we rushed over to the street off of St. Clair and East 68th and Bless, and there was two houses on fire. And we were afraid. It was right after the Brelo verdict was read, four hours after the Brelo verdict. And we said, oh, no. But what happened, it was an 86-year-old lady left, left her food on, and... Um, and the house caught a blaze, as well as the one next door. And then we weren't, um, we just started talking with some of the residents about it. The residents, uh, to your point, I was listening to you, which made me brought this up. They were not ready to riot after the, um, the Brillo verdict, but they all talked about the uh, Tamir Rice verdict. And the Tamir Rice verdict has the administration as well as the um, the city on edge. That's a 12-year-old boy that was killed by a police officer. You know, uh, Councilman Conwell, I want you to, uh, because you represent uh, a segment of the community that uh, that voted you in office, and you know how your people feel. Uh, I understand the dynamic, the political dynamic of Cleveland is similar to Philadelphia. It's similar. Where, similar. Matter of fact, I know your mayor. I know. I know. I know your mayor also. Yeah, where we have a, a black mayor, black police commissioner, black district attorney, uh, black council people all over the place, and they really don't speak uh, with the voice of the community. And I'm not saying that you fall into that category, but you are fully aware of the dynamic in our community. How are the people reacting? Because you see a lot of these cities. And when things like this happen, uh, the people rebel because of not necessarily because of particular verdicts, but because of the systematic white supremacy and oppression of our people that has been going on since slavery ended, uh, chattel enslavement ended. Uh, We know that uh, this prison industrial complex is another form of slavery that has continued. But we know how our people feel in these cities. And I know that any politician, especially a conscious politician, is walking a tightrope. Talk about the, the plans that you as a councilman have for our people to try to move forward or to try to avoid these pitfalls. Or, or Just talk about some of the plans that you have to assist the community in moving forward. Well, well let me say this. I was talking with, um, I always talk with, with Vince, because I walk my neighborhood 
at least twice a month talking with my uh, my bosses, my board of directors, my uh, my residents. And um, to me, Rice, the killing of the 12-year-old uh, um, young boy, as well as the 137 shots, those incidents, is, they're like tipping points. It's tipping points because many of my residents, many of the people in the city of Cleveland, the African-American community, is uh, live in abject poverty and concentrated poverty where, um, you know, it's mold and mildew just in their houses. Children have to walk unsafe routes to to and from school. Um, um, the, the justice system is a justice of inequality where the um, prosecutor rushes to uh, give African-American males um, felonies where they can't get employment or go to school or to advance. So all this frustration, all this frustration is similar to Baltimore. And so when you see the 12-year-old boy that was killed by the police officer, that's the tipping point. That's the tipping point of no way out. And that's what we're afraid of right now. How do we get our people resources and opportunities? How do we make the school system better? How do we bring jobs and, edu and employment and education for the residents? But the tipping point that, that we're really afraid of, because Cleveland, Cleveland is the second highest um, city in the nation dealing with concentrated poverty, and that can make things explode. Yes. Yes. You know, um, it's, it's several community organizations that's been involved on the ground uh, uh, dealing with this issue and trying to help uh, in the community understand from Brother Vince that uh, we might have some calls from some of the organization members coming in. We might have one now. Uh, 216-636 area code or 663 area code. What's your name? Where are you calling from? It's Jamil in Cleveland. Jamil? Jamil in Cleveland. Yes, how are you, sir? You know, your voice is a little muffled on your phone. If you can get to a better line, or talk, you're not on the speaker, are you? I was on the speaker. Oh, yeah, yeah. You got to, yeah, just, just, yeah, just get right to your phone, brother. Uh, brother Tamir? Yeah. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. How y'all doing today? Great, great. Uh, uh, tell us a little okay, bit about yourself, brother Tamir. Yeah, what's up to everybody? Hey, how you doing, young man? How you doing? I'm all right. Brother Tamir, I understand that you are part of a uh, grassroots group. Tell us a little bit about the group. Oh, yeah, I'm a part of Peace in Your Hood. Um, it's my Khalid, Khalid Samar. I know y'all familiar with Khalid Samar. I believe y'all familiar with Khalid Samar. This is dedicated to trying to stop violence, youth violence, and, you know, violence in the city of Cleveland. And also, you know, we get involved in different situations that go on, you know, anything that's an injustice to the community. Brother, tell us uh, a little bit about the feelings of the community as you know it on your level. We we talked to the councilman, and he talked about the the community and some issues or some uh, things to try to help the community move forward. I know that you touched the community on on maybe a little different level. T tell us about the feelings of the community and what's going on uh, in reference to this verdict and uh, to, uh, the uh, decision on Tamir Rice? Um, well, in reference to the, you know, the 57 shots verdict? Yes, with uh, Timothy Russell and Marissa Alexander. Yeah, um, well, 
it's like for for most people that I'm that I talk to and be around, it's like a there go again type of feeling. You know, I mean, it was really expected. I definitely expected it. I didn't, you know, I I I pretty much knew, you know, knew how it was gonna go down because, you know, all the situations. Anytime we have injustice on the police and we have situations like that, it's always it don't never go in our favor. So I pretty much expected it, but I was told by some people I didn't know how they set everything up, like kind of like how the judge his movements was and some of the things that he was saying on TV and just how the case was prosecuted, that it was pretty much set up in a way to let him off. And, you know, in the community, people just, it's like, they don't, it's kind of like a hopeless feeling when it, when it comes to situations like that. It's kind of like you're kind of powerless. I know that, um, I know that I was talking to a police officer, a black police officer, and he was telling me that one thing he believed, you know, when the judge had said that they, he, that, that some, he, the, the two, um, that they were definitely murdered, but he couldn't actually convict the cop for murder because he couldn't say he was the one that murdered him. And the police officer was saying, this is a police officer telling me this, like, that was a setup because if, if you say that they murdered them, why wouldn't you charge everybody? You right. only charge right. one you're person right. because you're you know right. you're setting up to let them off. Everybody, you're right. Everybody should have charged. Right, but so you say you admit that he was murdered, that that they were murdered, but then you say we can't convict him of murder because we just can't say he murdered them. Well, you set it up like that because you knew you, you knew you couldn't convict him. It was a political crime game. It was a political crime right. game. Exactly. If you wanted to convict somebody, you would have charged them all. Right. You charge them all. You charge everybody. And the prosecutor should have did that. He should have charged them all, and they played a political con game. Exactly. If if I could jump in right quickly, I Let's just go want ahead, to kind of men- mention something that was that was obvious to a lot of people from the very start of this, and it may or may not have been talked about publicly, but it was very difficult to have a fair outcome for the charges that were levied with the dynamic and the relationships between all of those who were involved in this particular trial. It just so happens that there is a relationship between the judge who heard this case and the police unions that are in this city. Those are very the very same unions who contributed campaign dollars to this particular judge. So it just seemed kind of impossible for a fair trial to take place. Secondly, it was a bench trial instead of a jury trial. So by taking it away from a jury, you increase the likelihood that the outcome that you wanted to have would take place. And then the third thing is the role of the prosecutor in this whole scenario. So it just seems to me, and I'll just make this my opinion and I won't cast it on anyone anyone else but it just seems to me that the whole thing was set up it was orchestrated and it was extremely predictable so when the outcome was what it was a lot of people were not surprised because it was exactly what we expected to happen but in terms of the response you know a lot of people were afraid that buildings would burn and that there would be this 
this widespread reaction, you know. But we have to give the people of this city a certain amount of credit in terms of their response to it. We're not going to burn down our own home. That's completely illogical. It's not going to solve anything. You know, it's almost as though people think that we're savages and that we're uh, unwise people and that we would engage in that type of activity. So it, it it was unreasonable to expect us to burn Cleveland down. But that being said, it doesn't dismiss the the fact that people are angry about the verdict. And with the Tamir Rice case, you know, no charges having been filed and we're months after the incident, yeah, people are are, are going to be upset about that situation as well as some of the other cases involving police uh, brutality and police misconduct. Secondly, you know, you have to realize that we have this Department of Justice consent decree that is, uh, you know, to, to possibly be approved uh, by a federal judge in the city. We've had a civilian review board in Cleveland. The civilian review board has been ineffective because if you look at the history of what has happened since then, it had virtually no impact on police policies and procedures. They've been out there doing what they've been doing for years. So, yeah, now that we have the public spotlight and the national spotlight on us, it will be interesting to see whether or not this consent decree does have an actual impact. But, you know, it's almost an, uh, an exercise in futility because at the heart of it, it's not procedure that has to change. It's the heart of men that has to change. They have to be... It's that culture, Vince. It's a culture. Yes, absolutely. There is a culture. There's a blue wall of silence involved in this. There's a police culture that exists. And, you know, we, we always have to be mindful of the fact that police officers are trained to do what they do. And part of what they do is controlling behavior. You know, so when they come in and someone is considered to be a person of interest or a suspect or whatever, a lot of times they subdue first, and if they do, they might ask questions later, but they'll ask questions after the, the violence or the damage to that person has already occurred. So, you know, we, we cannot ignore the fact that this is police training, and the Department of Justice report indicated that the police training is inadequate. So there has to be massive uh, mental change within this, this department, and, and that's what will remain to be seen. You know, we're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with uh, News Talk 1490 Cleveland's talk show host, Brother Vince Robinson, uh, Councilman uh, boy, I, I had it Kevin down. Conwell. <laughs> I'm sorry. Councilman Conwell is with us on the line, and, and uh, Brother, I want to thank you for your call, and uh, I want you to call us again. Okay, thank you very, very much. We'll be right back after a brief word from us once. Hey, Vince? Yes. Yeah, I got to continue to work, man. I got deadlines to get some things done for you guys.
are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowner's insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Exactly what is there in one million black folks united in their will and purpose? What is in a million brothers and sisters who are tired of the same old rhetoric, the same old leaders, the same old ways of dealing with political and economic empowerment? What's in such a group of one million blacks who are unapologetic about their identity? What's in that same group collectively and cooperatively? who are willing to sacrifice some of its members' time, talent, and treasures for the uplift of black people in this country? Considering our relative position within the political system, it is rational to believe that one million like-minded black voters could affect positive change by leveraging their votes to obtain concessions from candidates prior to and after the election. If you want real change, Get involved with one million conscious black voters and contributors. The movement is now. Get involved and get information at info at IamOneOfTheMillion.com. That's info at IamOneOfTheMillion.com. Or go to www.IamOneOfTheMillion.com. Again, that's www.IamOneOfTheMillion.com. Get involved with real change. The the controlled press, the white press, inflames the white public against Negroes. The police are able to use it to paint the Negro community as a criminal element. The police are able to use the press to make the white public think that 90% or 99% of the Negroes in the Negro community are criminals. And once the white public is convinced that most of the Negro community is a criminal element, then this automatically paves the way for the police to move into the Negro community exercising Gestapo tactics, 
stopping any black man who is in the, on, on the sidewalk, whether he is guilty or whether he is innocent, whether he is well-dressed or whether he is poorly dressed, whether he is educated or whether he is dumb, whether he's a Christian or whether he's a Muslim, as long as he is black and a member of the Negro community, the white public thinks that the white policeman is justified in going in there and trampling on that man's civil rights and on that man's human rights. Once the police have convinced the white public that the so-called Negro community is a criminal element, they can go in and question, brutalize, murder unarmed, innocent Negroes, and the white public is gullible enough to back them up. This makes the Negro community a police state. This makes the Negro neighborhood a police state. It's the, it's the most heavily patrolled. It has more police in it than any other neighborhood, yet it has more crime in it than any other neighborhood. How can you have more cops and more crime? Why? It shows you that the cops must be in cahoots with the criminals. The police the same way. They put their club upside your head and then turn around and accuse you of attacking them. Every case of police brutality against a Negro follows the same pattern. They attack you bust you all upside your mouth and then take you to court and charge you with assault. What kind of democracy is that? What kind of uh, freedom is that? What kind of social or political system is it when a black man has no voice in court, has no nothing on his side other than what the white man chooses to give him? My brothers and sisters, we have to put a stop to this. And it will never be stopped until we stop it ourselves. They attacked the victim. And then the criminal who attacked the victim accuses the victim of attacking him. This is American justice. This is American democracy. And those of you who are familiar with it know that in America, democracy is hypocrisy. Now, if I'm wrong, put me in jail. But if you can't prove that if democracy is not hypocrisy, then don't put your hands on me. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening, and we're joined in conversation this evening with our special guest, 1490 News Talk Cleveland talk show host, Brother Vince Robertson, is with us this evening. I think uh, we lost the councilman. Uh, he's, he's not with us, I don't think. Brother Vince, you're still here. Yes, I'm still here. And uh, we have a call waiting on the line. Let's go to it. Uh, uh, 216-632 area code. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, no, this, this is Jamil calling me. I, I thought I, I could listen to the show through the phone. Okay, you oh, good. You're still on, Jamil. Stay with us. Yeah. Brother All Vince, right. you know, I, I wanted to kind of continue the conversation with the, the councilman, but he's, he's not with us. You know, <clears throat> if you look at um, organizations like the Urban League, and I wouldn't say that they're grassroots at all, but they come out with their report on uh, the state of black America every year. And I think this year's report uh, stated that, uh, in their opinion, the black community is under attack uh, with all of the uh, the uh, 
social indicators and policies uh, pointed directly at the black communities across this country that they're under attack. When we have our political representation, uh, they almost have a special uh, 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 a special uh, charge, so to speak, to really come up with solutions for our communities because the people are looking at them. They don't want to get to the point where they have to uh, to rebel and it becomes a violent rebellion, but they need viable solutions put forth by our people. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I asked the councilman about some of the things to help the people move forward. It's really necessary for people in leadership. I mean, you find some of our people in leadership, and I, like I said, Philadelphia is not much different than Cleveland. Some of these folks here in Philadelphia are into those offices for the paycheck and for the prestige of walking around communities with their chest out that they're a representative. But we really need leadership uh, coming from a lot of our officials, leadership and vision uh, to help these situations. We got young people. I, I don't know how old Brother uh, Jamil is that's on the line, but we have young people in these communities that don't have work, that don't see a way out, and they're some of the first ones that'll that'll grab a brick or grab something else and toss it through a window into places and businesses where they can't get jobs. So it's really necessary that, that uh, the people in leadership come up with solutions for our community. Uh, Brother Vince, before you weigh in on that, uh, I'm going to talk to uh, Brother Jamil and, and get his opinion on that. Brother Jamil? Uh, yeah. Um. I think, I mean, I agree with you. I agree with you. But I think that, and I speak for myself, I think that there's only two ways to to stop the injustice that's done to our people. I think economically is one, mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't think that violence is something that you can take off the table. Now, I'm not talking about throwing bricks through uh, a business or throwing bricks at the police. I think that Constructive violence is something that you really, at some point in time, can't take off the table because I just don't see marching bringing us any justice. Like I've done, I've done, I researched a lot of history, and the only time power has been gained in history is when it was an economic threat or it was a violent threat. Even if you go back to the slave trade with the slave revolt, and the slave trade was ended because of economics. But there was a lot of slave revolts going on also. They don't tell you that in history. So I think, honestly, then I speak for myself, I think violence is a tool, but I think it will have to be constructive violence. That's, and I, I, that's how I honestly feel about that. You, you know, uh, let me say something before I, I pass it over to Brother Vince. You know, I, I think your assessment is, uh, is kind of spot on as far as an economic threat or a violent threat because it seems that this country responds to both of them. But I think that I, I think that our people haven't really fully exercised their economic power and economic threat to the, to, to the system of white supremacy in major cities and in communities all over this country It's other people that run the businesses in our community, uh, 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 provide the jobs in our community 
and our people go to these businesses and spend lots of money to send other people's children to college and to start other businesses for other communities. So we really, and see, that's, that's one of the things that I, I wanted to raise with the councilman. We really have to start our people uh, on, on a path of economic empowerment. That's a way out of these situations, and it's a way for us to really come together as a community. I want to uh, talk about that issue a little more, but Brother Vince, weigh in on uh, what Brother Jamil was talking about. Well, I absolutely agree. You know, there has to be leverage of the economic resources that we have in the black community. I've, I've heard it stated that, you know, a trillion dollars flow through our hands, but the, the issue is what we do with those dollars once they flow through our hands. And, you know, one thing that really gets attention uh, from the powers that be is when we decide not to spend our money in certain places. So we have to exercise the clout that we have with the dollars. Secondly, we have a misperception that the government is in a position to influence this whole idea of job growth. But the jobs that we so desperately need don't come from the government. They come from businesses. And that's where we're missing the mark. We have lots of people who have been unemployed for a long period of time to a point where they don't even show up in the statistics anymore. Mm -hmm. And then we have the whole prison, uh, the public school, the prison pipeline situation. So we're, we're dealing with the impact of systemic racism that results in kids going to schools that are not serving them to the extent that they should. Some of them get frustrated, and then they exit the system before they even have an opportunity to complete the process. And where do they end up? They end up in prison because that's where they want them to be. So we have all these environmental factors that contribute to the lack of growth in our communities. You know, we do not leverage our economic, nor do we leverage our political power to the extent that we should to get the results that we would like to see. And, uh, Brother Elliot, I think you are completely spot on when you talk about the politicians that we have in office not serving the people and serving their own interests. The perfect place for a person is Congress. Because if you are one of the privileged few to get to that particular level, you can rest assured that you will be taken care of for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. But in order to get into Congress, you have to have support from so many people, and it is economic support, it's contributions to campaigns. Most politicians spend the majority of their time raising money for their campaigns, not raising money for their constituents. And that's where the problem lies, because it's really more about getting the office and staying in office than it is about providing for the needs of the constituents. And it happens at the top, and it also happens on the lower levels of uh, political realities. Now, in the case of a council person, and this is something that I have learned specifically from Councilman Conwell, a councilman has a constituency of a ward, and it's incumbent upon him to serve the needs of that constituency. Otherwise, they will find themselves out of a job. So a council person will be on the streets knocking on doors and letting people know what he or she can do for them, and then once they do that, they have to deliver 
on what they said that they were going to do because people have long memories when it comes to you said you were going to do something and you didn't do it, so now it's time to move forward and, and put somebody else. And that dynamic has to be repeated in all the other offices. So if you have judges, for instance, who make decisions such as the, the, the decision that was made in the Brelo case, you can't reward that particular judge by electing him to the Ohio Supreme Court. You have to remember that decision and make sure that he doesn't get elected to the Ohio Supreme Court where he can do further damage on a different level. If you have a prosecutor who is in office who facilitated the charade, you have to remember that when it comes time for election. So don't put that person back in office. Remove them from office and put them put someone in who will be more effective in representing your interests. This is what we have to do as responsible citizens in this community. People run away from things like jury duty. People can't even get selected for juries if they haven't registered to vote, you know. So the, the, the little political power that we have, i.e. the power to vote, is something that we have to take seriously, we have to be organized, and we have to execute our plans when it comes time to do that. You know, we have to have relationships with these businesses that are in a position to give us the jobs that we need in order for to keep kids out of harm's way. Summer is coming, you know. There are kids that are going to have a lot of idle time if they're not motivated to go out and find jobs. We need to have after-school programs so that we can get these kids into activities that are productive versus being non-productive. There are so many underlying issues that we have to address. And, yes, you know, we have organizations like the Urban League and other uh, entities that go through the same exercise and futility year after year after year, but what do we see changing? You know, we see organizations such as the NAACP struggling because, you know, people fail to see their relevance. You know, my father was a president of the Ross County chapter of the NAACP for over 20 years. Presently, my sister is the president of the Ross County uh, NAACP. You know, a couple weeks ago, there was an article in the uh, Cleveland newspaper, The Plain Dealer, about the Cleveland chapter of the NAACP. And basically what it did was it characterized this organization as being completely ineffective. Now, we know that there is inherent bias in some of the reporting that takes place, but the fact of the matter is you don't have young folks engaged in the NAACP right now. They're struggling to get young people engaged. You know, we have to be active in these organizations in order for them to be effective. Brother Mitch, you talked earlier about the um, the feelings of the community uh, with the upcoming decision on uh, Tamir Rice and this officer that killed him. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, a, and you kind of balanced it out with Timothy Russell and Marissa, uh, Melissa Alexander because of uh, a uh, criminal record they, they may have had. Uh, I think what our community has to understand, and I know that they do, is that a lot of our young people are are criminalized at a young age with with records that don't really contain violent uh, crimes, uh, dr- minor drug offenses, things of that nature. So when we see, and especially when uh, something happens in the community and they splash 
a young man or young woman uh, face up there and say he did this, he did, he has a long criminal record, and he might have ten drug offenses on there, or, or trying to make uh, ends meet and selling drugs and things of that nature. I think that we have to realize uh, uh, the system that we live under and and how they try to criminalize our people. But we also have to realize that Timothy Russell or Melissa Alexander could have been our daughter or son or brother or or sister. And we have to look at them the same. I know that we, the the young boy is 12, so he's a real special circumstance. But we can't kind of, uh, shun one and, and kind of raise up another. And I'm not saying it to you. I'm just saying, just talking to our community as a, as a you know, just, just a voice. Uh, Dayton, Ohio, I don't know how far that is from Cleveland. But the Three ca- hours. But the case with um, with the, uh, the young man in the, uh, in the, Walmart, the Walmart, Johnny Crawford, mm-hmm. that was gunned down. The police ran in there because he had a, a toy gun out. And they ran in there, and it took them less than 10 seconds, if I'm not mistaken, to gun him down in the Walmart. It, it's incidents like this that not only keeps continuing, but I agree with you. That consent decree that Cleveland is now under, I don't know whether that, in fact, I'm quite sure that that's not going to make much difference. It's other cities that's under consent decrees, and it's other cities that are fighting consent decrees from a lot of these powerful police unions. So, uh we have to, uh, we can depend on certain things politically, decisions that are made that will help us, but we can't put all our eggs in a political basket as far as a lot of these decisions because just like you and the councilman stated earlier, it's the attitudes of these people that you have to get to. Uh, and, and it kind of reminds me of um, last week was Memorial Day holiday, and on a lot of stations, uh whether it's black talk or even the conservative white stations, people was calling up thanking <clears throat> people for their service. But we have to realize that a lot of these men that are doing this stuff in the communities are veterans. The killer of Michael Brown, he was a veteran. Uh, the young man, that the, 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 the killer that choked Eric Gardner was a veteran. The young man that jumped on the car, the white officer that jumped on the car and shot 40 times through the window at Timothy Russell and Marissa Alexander was a Gulf War veteran. A lot of these, are guys, a lot of these men are coming home from service, especially the Gulf War, because they're still in their 20 to 35-year-old range. They're coming home, and they're excellent candidates for these police forces. And they're getting hired. And we see what they're doing in the communities. So a lot of this stuff is not only systemic, but these individuals, they don't live among the community. They're automatically afraid of black people, and they can't wait for anything that looks like a false move so they can unload on them, whether they're children, women, or, or, or men. And another case I want to ask you about that I, that I haven't heard much more about was the uh, young woman, Teresa Anderson. Or Tanisha Anderson. Or t- Tanisha. Tell, me a, tell me a little bit about that, Brother Vince. Well, it, there was something that happened that uh, involved her behavior. And uh, apparently she has a history of mental, mental illness. Mental illness, yes. Uh, and she was, you know, managing her mental illness or whatever. But 
At any rate, the police ended up being called, and it was the police response that ended up in, in her life being taken. And the, the problem is something that you raised in the comments that you just made, and that is uh, around the whole idea of training. And the problem is that we give the discretion to take a life to someone who may not be able to logically or may not be qualified or capable of assessing someone's mental state and may end up doing what they are trained to do. Those very same uh, individuals who decide that they want to serve their country and go through the process of boot camp and all the other training and indoctrination that they receive in that process. You know, this is one thing that we're not really considering. You know, one of the aspects of the of, or one of the agreements that was made uh, this past week uh, with uh, the Department of Justice was that um, police officers would not use their weapons to strike someone in the head. And I was thinking about that as, as, as I was reading that information. So prior to this particular consent decree that, that's on the table right now, it was okay for an officer to go upside someone's head with a gun. That says to me that it was an approved policy. <laughs> so it's part of their training. And that just brings me back to a realization and an understanding that that is what officers are trained to do. The response from the Cleveland Police Patrolmen's Association was that officer, officers now are going to put themselves in jeopardy because they may have to do some paperwork. So they're going to make a split-second decision about pointing a gun at someone or uh, de-escalating a situation through a particular means based on whether or not they'll have to do paperwork. It was just, it was just unbelievable that that type of a, of a response would come, but that was their reaction, and they said that they would uh, cooperate in this process, but, you know, we have to really fully understand what the function of police departments are across the country. And I, I also thought about this. Is it going to be necessary to have similar investigations and consent decrees in, in major cities and smaller cities across this country in order for things to be made right? You know, the reason that we're talking about this it's because social media and traditional media have gotten a hold of this story and they've created the awareness of it that they have. But the reality is that we live in these different pockets of communities all across the country, and a lot of times we don't hear about these isolated incidents of police brutality. And the truth of the matter is there's a certain degree of corruption and dysfunction in police departments all over the country. And we're becoming more and more aware of it because of the prevalence of social media, the fact that everybody has a cell phone with a camera on it, and they can capture footage of things that, that happen. You know, one of the unfortunate consequences of, of that, though, is that we don't always get contact. We might get a, a short video clip of something. We don't know what happened leading up to it. And a lot of times we don't find out what happened after the fact, so it just leaves us shaking our heads about what happened. But, you know, 
you've got a certain uh, aspect of, of, of a police department that has conscientious people in it, and then you have certain aspects that, you know, that there aren't conscientious people, that there are people who have their own mental disorders, i.e. A, a soldier who returns from Afghanistan or Iraq and then ends up on a police force and has all these different illnesses, mental illnesses that haven't been resolved, and then the end result is that somebody pays the price with their life. We're joining the conversation with News Talk 1490 Cleveland's talk show host, Brother Vince Robinson. We're talking about Cleveland and the incidents behind uh, Timothy Russell and Marissa Alexander being killed by police. Also, to the case of Tamir Rice. And, and you can call up with uh, your concerns and issues at 215-253-7263. That's 215-253-7263 to join the conversation. Brother Vince, uh a little over ten years ago, Cleveland was uh, gave the, uh, the the so-called moniker of being the poorest uh, big city in the country, uh, with a poverty rate I think it was over well over thirty uh, percent. We see now that ten years later, the poverty rate is a little bit higher. It's not much different. It's still in the thirties. It's not much different than. Well, let me take this call uh, and then I'll come back to. Uh, what I want to raise. 215 Erico, what's your name? Where are you calling hey, from? Brother. Hey, Brother Elliot, how you doing, my brother? How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Hello, Brother Robinson and Brother Jamel. How y'all brothers doing tonight? Excellent. Oh, uh, praises be. Yeah, Brother Elliot, that's when it's the shit shit is with you and your guests. You having these brothers on is so timely because I was just watching 60 Minutes as, as your program was coming on the night, and it was doing a feature, the beginning of the 60 Minutes was doing a feature on the incident in Cleveland with, with the sister and brother getting killed. And they dealt with the sister, sister Alexander, brother uh, uh, Elliot, the one that got killed. They died, in, died at the hands of the police when they was called to her house because she was having a mental you know, breakdown or whatever. And what, 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 what really just had me just shaken and utter disgust was when the, when, when the sister's brother was saying how the cop just took and slammed it to the down into the ground, put his knee in her back, everything, and they're gonna sit there and tell a bare faced lie. And the brother said, I saw what he did, he, and he, he just out and out lied. And I'm saying to myself, here's a woman, and here you're a trained police officer, you do a, a human being like that. Just show no kind of respect at all for their sister's humanity and everything, you know? And that Negro that's the police commissioner out there, he's a disgrace in this life and the next. You're talking about a house Negro. I mean, he was trying to do his best to toe the line, but at the same time, he was going to, he caught himself trying to, at the same time, hold the police accountable. And I don't want to hear that, so well, he's trying to strike a balance. He was out in our house Negro. And see, with that kind of Negro in that police department, this is why this stuff continues to go on in our community, because you get Negroes like him, and that went out there in Baltimore. These Negroes ain't they, they might be black and skin, but they sure ain't black when it comes to, to, to being a black man. All they are, they, they blue. They see blue first. Blue are all. They part of the blue wall of silence and stuff, you know. And, and, and like here in Philadelphia, the only police commissioner I ever had any respect for in this town was Sylvester Johnson because he was a black man first and a police commissioner second. You know, he's no longer the police commissioner. We've got this Negro head now, Ramsey. But the point I'm saying is that that guy out in Cleveland, man, he, he's bad news, you know. But the point I'm saying is that we, we 
face uphill battle. That's why we unity is what's gonna get us out of this, brother Elliot and, and, and brother Robinson, brother Jamil is in the stuff. And I'm like brother Jamil, I don't advocate violence, but but like Malcolm said, it may come to a point in this country where the black man gonna have to say the hell with the eyes and, and do and we do what we gotta do. We hope they don't that's why we have to do our economic thing first, but like you said, Elliot, we economic power can concede some political power concessions from these from these Europeans because this this stuff can't go on forever, brother. We just can't continue to have our people being mistreated and shot down at the hands of police that just fully paid servants and stuff like that. This stuff can't go on go on go on forever, man. It, it's, it, it got to be a, a stopping point at some point, you know. And I just you know thank y'all, thank you, brother Ella, for giving me the time to share my views tonight. Thank you for your call, Joe. Uh, Joe, before you leave us, um, we were talking earlier about the responsibility of uh, political figures, especially, in fact, that's the one I'm talking about, the black political figures, to really come up with with workable solutions and workable countermeasures to counter the attacks on our community because it's clear it's attacks coming from all fronts in our community. Uh, what do you think about that or in reference to the, the point I'm raising? Do you think well, that they have a, a uh, concerted, uh, uh, should have a concerted effort among themselves to come up with workable solutions to give to our people? Because the only thing that they say in concert one another is when the, the when November comes around, seems like every year or April, which mm-hmm. happens in Pennsylvania, is vote our people died for that right they really mm-hmm. they all say that no doubt but it's no other workable solutions being put forth by a lot of our leadership i just want to know your opinion on it before you leave us well well Elliot, my opinion is this you know like you was telling uh, uh, brother robinson and brother jamil and the councilman when he was on see far too many black politicians because like you like you was telling him Philadelphia is not too much different than cleveland and a lot of other cities in america too many of these black politicians whether they're on the city level state level or or aka the federal level the congressional black caucus two men is in there for a paycheck and to go along to get along they are so ineffective and stuff i mean it, 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 but as long as we as black people keep putting people in like like the john lewis's of the world and i'm not demeaning the brother he, he took a, he took a terrible beat down in alabama back in 60 uh over that summer break but his day is done he, i mean he need to go ahead and retire get some young Progressive black men and women in there that can replace them. Same thing with, 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 with Charlie Rangel and the rest of them. They got to go because all they are are pieces of white supremacy. They go along with everything with those racist counterpart bigots that they serve with in the kind of banners, the Mitch McConnells of the world, all the down ISIS, all them racist Congress people. They go along with them when it comes to Israel, when it comes to, to giving police uh, military style assault weapons, everything. So these people are ineffective. All they want to do is appease white people, their white slave master. And stuff. They 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 work. All they care about is their paycheck. It's, it's far too many of them are not concerned with the interests of black people, even though black people put them there. So you need a new, fresh in, intake of new, young black men and women that's conscious. They got their people's best interests at heart. Because as long as you keep turning these people on a city, state, and federal level, nothing's going to change. Cause they're advocating for black people. Because like I said, they set for life. They serve one term in Congress, uh, Brother Elliot and Brother Robinson and Brother Jamil. They set for life. Here in Philadelphia, you serve one term as a city council person or a state rep or, or a state senator. You set for life just one term. They're looking at the paycheck. And they're looking at the go-along with the get-along. Until, until we get different ones in there, our political power is going to be very, very weak at, at best. 
So, so we definitely got to get ones in there that got our interests at heart. Like, like we still had a brother here in Philadelphia, brother uh, Robinson and brother Jamil. He's deceased now, brother Dave Richardson. He was a former state rep. He died back in 1995, right before the Million Man March. He was the only black politician, brothers, that when Minister Farrakhan would come to Philadelphia, he stood with the minister. All the other niggas, when the Jews, when, when, when the right, right biggest, you know, shocked the Nelson Minister Farrakhan, they, were, they ran like, like, like Mr. Farrakhan had the disease. They stood with the minister because they first thing used to always say, I'm a black man first and I'm a state rep second. And that's why, and you, and you, and you, and we missing black men like Dave Richardson. And this is what, and this is what missing for, for black people across America. That's why we, when Cynthia McKinney, when she lost, and Brother Ellingham had, had her on the show the other week, we miss sisters like her, and, and, and brothers like Dave, brothers like Earl Hilliard, the, the brother, the congressman from Alabama. These were stand up black people, Adam Clinton Powell from years past. You need black men and women that got backbone, that's not afraid of the white power structure, but far too many of them on the city, state, and local level, they're scared of the white man. All they about is to go along with to get along. As long as we keep putting people like that in office, nothing's going to change for our people. And that, that, that's pretty much my comments. Joe, I want to thank you for your call. Thank you, Brother Alec. Uh, Brother Vince? Yes. You know, the, um, you know, the points Joe raises, uh, <laughs> it's, it's almost similar to what uh, Jamel was talking about. I think he was a little more uh, boisterous about it, or boisterous, or however you want to say it, but uh, it's something that needs to really be considered. I mean, we see what's going on, and, and we see that the, the the people, the people that's really affected by these things, are really screaming out for help. Let's uh, before mm-hmm. I get you to uh, to uh, give opinion on what uh, the caller stated. Let's go to another call. E five zero area code. What's your name? Where you calling from? Caller. E five zero area code. I guess uh, we lost that call. I guess they'll call back, brother Vince. Before we had to call a call in, I mentioned to you about the uh, a little over ten years ago when Cleveland was given that uh, dubious title of being the poorest city in America, uh, with a poverty rate of uh, a little below thirty two percent, and we see now that uh, I think it's around thirty seven percent, and with the advent of uh, gentrification going on in all of these major cities especially in our communities where white folks are coming back into these communities and blacks are being cordoned off or herded into certain communities what do you what is your assessment of that um in 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 regards to us formulating a strategy to try to come to try to combat uh, what's going on? Because we, and the reason I'm saying that, in Philadelphia, for example, you have uh, the city planners, uh, committee of seventy, all different type of people that have put forth plans. Uh, for example, they have this Philly Philly 2035, where they have actual models of what the city of Philadelphia is going to look like, and what they envision it look like in 20. 35. Now, if you look at some of these men sitting on these panels that I'm talking about, they're older white men that won't be around in 2035. But they're planning for their children and their children's children to live in areas in relative comfort that we won't be involved in. Because you can see from the plans that they don't envision blacks being in those areas of the city. 
what plans are we coming up with? And not only because I'm not going to put it on elected officials necessarily. We have to come up with workable solutions for our people to move forward. And it, ha- it has to start at the grassroots level. I see some of the things that you're doing in the Cleveland area as far as uh, 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 bringing folks in to not only talk about health, you're bringing historians in, you're holding uh, these sessions at uh, community organizations, uh, churches that will donate space. It, it's things like what you're doing that is, is, a, is a workable solutions, and that's what I'm talking about. We really need more people with workable solutions. We have a lot of people that talk about these things and talk about the problems. But I think what you're doing and what others are doing are workable solutions. Talk about that from your perspective, Brother Vince. Well, you know, the, the fact that poverty is what it was 10 years ago and it's still, you know, in a similar situation, it, I think it's partly by design. And I think the issue that you raised in terms of the, the future of Philadelphia uh, being planned is is not unlike the, the futures of other areas of the country, because what we have to understand is that it's all part of a major system of control. And what is happening is that we keep responding to or reacting to these systems of controls that are in place. You know, the fact of the matter is, and you alluded to it earlier, this uh this slavery that exists in our country. We think that the 13th Amendment did away with slavery. In fact, it did not. It created a loophole that (laughs) would permit the continuance of slavery. Okay. So while all this urban planning is taking place, they're continuing to build prisons, and they're incentivizing the building of those prisons. So if prisons aren't full, then those owners of those prisons have to face some type of a penalty. All of these things work in concert with each other. You know, secondly, you know, you had Brother Malcolm on earlier, and the things that he talked about are extremely relevant today. It's like nothing has changed, and indeed, nothing has changed. The fact is, we should be planning our own future. We depend on our oppressor who has a system of education that is designed to indoctrinate us and, and allow us or encourage us to submit to authority to continue the, the, the situation that we're in. If we really want to become enlightened, motivated, and engaged, we have to take a greater role in educating ourselves, knowing our history, being connected to the greatness that we are. We've been so disconnected from our greatness because we know very little about it. They know more about us than we do. So, you know, it's, it's a very basic thing. If you have a something called the family unit, and let's just go ahead and say it's a mother, it's a father, and it's children because, you know, they, they talk about the absence of the black father you know, and, and, and all of this, and, you know, we can we can even go back to Bill Clinton and what happened during his administration and, and the hundreds and thousands of black men who were incarcerated during his presidency. You know, we've had this, this very intentional destruction of the black family take place, but, you know, we have to come to the reality that while this 
is a reality. There are still brothers out there who are responsible and can be responsible. So we have to have a strong family unit, and then we have to emanate from there. So we have to educate our children to understand reality. You know, it's really interesting. I, I was doing research in, in preparation for the show, the show today, and, you know, we, we, we talked about the fact that there has, has been no charge against the officer that was involved in killing Samir Wright. And the city's response to this particular tragedy was that Tamir, Tamir Wright was responsible for his own death. <laughs> the 12-year-old kid was responsible for his own death. And the underlying tone there was that Tamir Wright should have had parents who influenced him to a point to understand that you can't be out somewhere with a gun, whether it's a toy gun or it's a real gun. So the blame was shifted back to us. You know, so I'm not going to say that, that that's an accurate assessment and it's a justification for not charging the officer, but what I would say is because of the realities of black people in the society, we have to educate our children so that they do understand who and what they are and the consequences that can result if they are not aware. This is a responsibility that we have to take for ourselves. I, listen, I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying. We're joining the conversation this evening with News Talk 1490, Cleveland's talk show host, Brother Vince Robertson. He's with us this evening talking about all things Cleveland, the, uh, the aftermath of the uh, uh, the murders of Timothy Russell, Marissa Alexander, the uh, potential verdicts coming down in reference to Tamir Rice and other subjects sitting around. Uh, living in Cleveland and some of these urban environments all around the country. You can join the conversation, too, by dialing 215-253-7263. That's 215-253-7263. Brother Vince, we see that um, uh, not unlike Ferguson and, and, uh, well, it wasn't, I don't think he was invited in Baltimore, but not unlike other areas of the country where uh, rebellions have happened, uh, or police killings. Uh, Reverend Shopton, I think, was called in or came into Cleveland. Um, and we noticed that uh, not only with Reverend Shopton, but uh, it seems like in concert, in a lot of these cities where things go on, whether the community is inflamed through police killings or police abuse, that almost with a crescendo, the black clergies in uh, a lot of these neighborhoods come out and tell the people, be calm, uh, don't, don't, uh, don't cause any disturbance, uh, let the legal system take its course without any real solutions. And we, we see that a lot of the faith-based money that have went out in these communities, a lot of these men have to answer the call from the government when things happen. They have to get out here and start spouting the, the party line, so to speak. But talk about... Um, the community response and also the response uh, from people affected when Sharpton and others came into Cleveland to, uh, I guess, to kind of take the temperature of uh, the people in Cleveland. Talk talk about it from your perspective. Well, there there was 
a bit of pushback from some people uh, in this community about Reverend Sharpton's appearance. You know, everybody knew he was coming, and, you know, there are some who feel that he's a race baiter and so forth and so on. You know, but when you look at his track record, you know, he's kind of a, a lightning rod, so to speak, in terms of creating awareness of things that happen in different places in the country. So him being in Cleveland was not unusual at all. And in fact, he was invited here by the pastor of Olivet Institutional Baptist Church. Olivet is a key uh, church in this area because it is where the Reverend Otis Moss was pastor for several years. And he had a relationship with Dr. King. And when Dr. King came to visit Cleveland, he came to Olivet Institutional Baptist Church. So there's some history, history there, and there, there was a specific reason for bringing uh, Reverend Al to that particular venue. Uh, that being said, you know, Reverend Sharpton came here, and his basic pledge was to keep awareness of this on the forefront. You know, he's saying that when the Republican National Convention comes, He's going to be involved in, you know, again, bringing awareness to these things that are going on and leading protests and so forth and so on. So, you know, that that's what that piece is all about. But, you know, I also think that it's important to understand that ministers and churches are part of the control process that happens. And they feel that, that the powers that be feel that they can get to us by utilizing pastors in order to quell any potential violence that could happen. So, you know, it happens all the time. There's, there's nothing new about it. And, and the fact of the matter is they have very strategic positions because they have people who are beholden to their words and their thoughts and to their influence. So it's just it's strategic, but you also identified the whole idea of faith-based funding. So if you follow the money, then you understand that there's a certain expectation that in exchange for us giving you this, this money, you're going to keep your folks under control. And that's really where this becomes problematic for me because the religion has been used to control us as a people historically. Yes. You know, and this, despite that, you know, our inherent spirituality kind of overrules it to a certain extent, mm -hmm. but not always. You know, we're very spiritual people. You know, there's no question about that. And I think that's part of the relationship that we have with our ancestors that keeps us on that spiritual vibe. But at the same time, our activism is tempered by the indoctrination that we get through religion. So whereas sometimes where a violent response might be justified, religion is used to neutralize that. So we have to be really cognizant and understand all these different means of control that are exerted upon us in our communities, and the church is one of those. <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly with your sentiments. Well, Brother Vince, you told me earlier, about the and I, and I want to understand the dynamic of Cleveland. I see that according to certain uh, census uh, figures, that Cleveland is still over fifty percent black. 
But I see that East Cleveland is, uh, according to some statistics, 90 to 93 percent black. But to explain to me that dynamic of Cleveland and East Cleveland. I, you know, I, I'm thinking that the, the city is one, Cleveland. But talk about that dynamic here and uh, how these certain areas are kind of cordoned off. Well, presently, there is a conversation about annexing East Cleveland to Cleveland. You know, Cleveland has also been identified as one of the most racially segregated cities in the country uh, behind uh, Chicago, and then you have uh, Milwaukee, and you have some other cities that historically have been segregated. But, you know, up to a point, it was basically... The east side of Cleveland was black. The west side of Cleveland was white. Mm-hmm. And then you have East Cleveland. East Cleveland is is actually a suburb of Cleveland that was heavily influenced by the Rockefellers. They own property there. Uh, General Electric has a plant in East Cleveland, and they, they get a significant amount of tax dollars from uh, that particular plant. And you had some other industries or other businesses that were in East Cleveland and left. And when you had that that flight of business away from East Cleveland, then you, you saw, because of the diminution of the, the tax base, you saw uh, an erosion of the city. So East Cleveland is suffering because their police department is underfunded, they don't uh, have a, a working fire truck or the, the truck that they have. It has so many issues that sometimes they require assistance from Cleveland and surrounding communities like Cleveland Heights or South Euclid or whatever. So East Cleveland at one point was a gym, and now it isn't. It's just it's, it's, driving through East Cleveland is like a war zone. And then on top of that, You've had allegations of, of political corruption in uh, East Cleveland. It was it was like it was a city in Nigeria instead of Ohio for for a season. So they've been dealing with the the result of fiscal mismanagement in that city and an erosion of the tax base, and you've seen you know a rise in poverty because. You, had a lot of foreclosures. You've got a lot of empty, abandoned buildings. You have streets that are in a state of total disrepair, you know. And then somebody came up with the bright idea of bringing traffic cameras into the city. That the current mayor had that epiphany. So they brought in the traffic cameras, and then the city ended up in debt to that particular company because, for whatever reason, it hasn't worked out. So it's just. You know, it, it's really a mess, and, um, you know, taking East Cleveland into Cleveland, you know, when you're looking at a city that is, is having the, the economic issues that it's, it's having right now, you know, it, it may not necessarily be a good fit, but, you know, you kind of feel bad for the citizens of East Cleveland because they're having to deal with what they're having to deal with right now, and it, it's just not a good situation. This the school system uh, in Cleveland. Uh, I assume that it's not unlike any other major cities, especially inner city communities, where a lot of the schools are being closed and uh, either taken over by private charter schools, which becomes a business, 
or just closed, period. Uh, talk about the school system for our children in the Cleveland and Cleveland vicinity. Well, I'm not a product of the Cleveland school system, but I have been exposed to it. Uh, I was a reporter in uh, Cleveland at uh, WERE and WJMO, to the radio stations in this community. And when I was a reporter, I covered school board meetings and as well as the uh, the Justice Center and City Hall. So I kind of became acquainted with it, and, and I've seen the various superintendents come and go. But one thing that has been consistent over the years that I've been looking at the Cleveland school system is that it's lagging. The the kids do not, in, in, in many cases, have up-to-date textbooks. Um, you know, there are pockets of success within the school system, like the, the School of the Arts and a, a technical school here and there, but you still have a relatively high dropout rate. Uh, you, you still have, um, you know, kids that uh, are, are just, in, in some cases, not manageable. I can recall going to um, an assembly that was an anti-bullying uh, program that they they had at one of the local schools and and I was just appalled at the way the students were behaving. You know, when you uh, have schools, you you have to manage the energy of these children. And I don't know if it's something in the food, if you know, if it's a lack of of direction from their parents or parent or whatever the case may be. But it's more than a notion. You know, if you're managing a classroom, and as a teacher, you have 35 students. You know, they have come to Cleveland with a program that Bill and Linda Gates had sponsored where they wanted to create these small schools. And, you know, this is something that I experienced in Glenville, which is the community that I live in. I, I live in. I volunteered to participate in this process to have an impact on the curriculum and to just have an understanding of what kinds of changes could be made to improve the quality of education. But what I found when I went through that process is that the teachers weren't fully engaged in that process because you have superintendents that come through and they leave, and every time they come, they start initiating all these changes. So if you, if you look at the fact that it seems that every three or four years you got a new superintendent, then they have to start from scratch and go through a whole new procedure or implement whole new policies, and in the process, the students suffer. So, you know, I just think that to a certain extent, there's a dysfunctionality in the school system. And, you know, you have teachers that are well-intentioned, but they're not getting the support and the resources that they need. Some of these teachers are having to provide supplies for their students. You know, they're, they, they have to go through so much in order for things to work. And then you have this whole idea of teaching to a test. So these kids are going through this process, and they're, they're tested the way that they're tested, and a lot of the learning is not really taking place. So there's a certain degree of dysfunction. And then if you're familiar with, with Dr. Umar Johnson and his whole idea of ADHD and how kids are being pushed into special education programs and so forth because of the funding that they get per student, then you have a, a whole nother 
dynamic in this situation. And again, in the process, the, the, the learning is sacrificed for the idea of taking the kids through a process. It's, it's really a, a sad situation. Now, we do have a school in Cleveland. It's a charter school. It's headed by Nanaqua uh, David Whitaker. And it's an Afrocentric school. And if I think we posted something on our Facebook page. It may have been on your Facebook page that just really talked about how kids are thriving in those kinds of environments. That's the testimony that we need to understand about how we do have an ability to impact the quality of the education that our kids are getting when we take ownership of it. But if you look at the, the, the school system here in Cleveland, I hate to say it, but it, it is really failing the students because some of them go through the complete process of K through 12, and when they get to college, they need remedial assistance to get them up to speed in order to take their college coursework. And that's how this school system is failing us. You know, I, I understand our people's concerns nationwide about uh, these schools because we pay taxes like everybody else, and our tax money is utilized in other school systems while ours fail. But on the other hand, we do have to take control of educating our children because they're our children. You mentioned about uh, Umar Johnson and that project that he has uh, at the old HBCU in Virginia. I think it's St. Mm-hmm. Paul's College where he's trying to raise enough money to open it back up for a uh, school to educate young African-American boys. Those ideas is something that we need because we have to re-educate our, our youth. They're our future. And it, we talked earlier, you talked earlier, about the uh, the churches in our community. And I think it's time that these churches, the temples, and mosques uh, be utilized more than on Wednesday for Bible study and on Sundays uh, to be uh, uh, Sundays or Saturdays, depending on which one you are. They need to be utilized during the week as far as educating our children, either classes in the evening, classes on Saturday or Sunday. We have to start some process to re-educate our children because they're falling behind, and that's our future. Yeah, but, you know, realistically, though, when you look at the, the, the mind state of some parents, many of them are children raising children. And they, they don't even consider the importance of the proper education. We give a lot of lip service to the importance of education, but education is really something that, that's really intended to prepare someone to get a job. You know, and then they get a job and then they get pulled into that whole debtor relationship that we as consumers in this society have so mm-hmm. you know it, it, it's it's really sad that we don't have parents who are responsible enough to even understand how important it is but you know we've got to change that paradigm so that we're cultivating entrepreneurs and not just somebody who got a job or got a degree and then went to work for the man oh, most definitely and i totally agree with that totally agree we're going to take a brief break and when we come back you can join this conversation for the last 20 minutes of the program with news talk 1490 cleveland's talk show host brother vince robinson he's joining us in conversation this evening and you can get involved at 215-253-7263 that's 215-253-7263 we'll be right back 
are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Nobody celebrates victories against racism and apartheid a generation or two back more often or more lavishly than the Congressional Black Caucus. It's something they have to do constantly, not just because some of those victories made their career possible, but because apart from those careers, they have not really accomplished much in the last 40 years. From the 1990s onward, most of them voted for legislation that doubled down on the war on drugs and to intensify the over-policing and mass incarceration in their own communities. When it became clear that Katrina was the excuse to dispossess and disperse into exile a couple hundred thousand black people on the Gulf Coast, the Black Caucus called no hearings. It sounded no alarms. And despite their relentless celebrations of victories over racism, the entire Black Caucus has consistently turned a blind eye to the brutal settler state apartheid of Israel. The CBC's promise to skip out when Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu addresses the U.S. Congress on March 5 is not an act of vision or moral courage. When Israel demolishes Palestinian houses, when it lynches and deports Africans, when Israel passes more discriminatory laws and steals Palestinian land, the Congressional Black Caucus says nothing. When successive U.S. administrations of both parties endorsed the Israeli punishment of Palestinian civilians with water and power cuts, with blockades of medical and construction supplies, books, and even toys. The CBC is silent then, too. When Israel threatens all its neighbors with nukes and makes the false claim that Iran has nuclear weapons, the CBC are quiet. When Israeli fighter jets, armored copter gunships, and tanks rain white phosphorus and shell fire on Palestinian neighborhoods, the CBC, with the rest of Congress, unanimously endorsed the aggressor's right to defend themselves by murdering children and voted to resupply the expended Israeli munitions. So let's be clear. Netanyahu is a demagogic racist. He heads the planet's most vicious apartheid regime, a U.S.-supported and funded client state 
engaged in the conquest and occupation of neighboring territories and the genocidal dispossession and exile of their populations, all paid for with U.S. tax dollars and under U.S. diplomatic cover. But that's not the CBC's problem with him or with Israel. Like the rest of the U.S. ruling elite, the CBC has no problem with Israeli apartheid. The CBC's problem is that Republican House leader John Boner invited Netanyahu, not President Obama. So the Netanyahu visit is a violation of protocol, a kind of insult to the first black president. We should not be surprised. The CBC's tunnel vision works the same way at home as it does abroad. Thanks to the large numbers of blacks pushed out of homes in the workforce in recent years, the rate of black child poverty now stands at 38.2%, an all-time high. The Congressional Black Caucus is not calling daily press conferences over that either. Detroit is executing its own slow-motion Katrina, pursuing water cutoffs and evictions that will affect over 100,000 residents, just about all of them black. And this is beneath the CBC's notice. But let somebody insult or disparage the First Lady, and they'll be all over that. It's because the CBC, like the rest of the black political class, are self-serving cowards. Their failure is symptomatic of the shrinkage of black politics from one of vision and struggle to a politics of protecting their own privilege. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Bruce Dixon. Find us on the web at www.blackagendareport.com. Welcome back. It's time for an awakening, and we're joined in conversation this evening by News Talk 1490 Cleveland's talk show host, Brother Vince Robinson. We've been we've been talking about Cleveland, the incidents there, but, uh, about the uh, the killing of uh, Timothy Russell and Melissa Williams, also the uh, pending decisions coming down in reference to Tamir Rice and how the community feels in relation to it. Let's go to two one five area code. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Yeah, um, Rich, brother Richard, um, Philadelphia. How are you, brother Richard? I, I, how you doing, uh, Ellie? Um, and, and brother, um, to you, how you doing? Uh, that you know, as, as y'all were talking, and I'm I'm trying to think of how to add something substantive. I I said to myself, I really can't uh, because uh, it raises. I mean, we we all know you know how the problem is. I guess I'll say it that way. And as you say, brother Elliot, you know, needing people to provide solutions um, to that. But brother, one thing I wanted to—I guess I wanted to ask, like maybe I'll just ask too. What do, who do you see is the driving force taking out the political class and taking out the uh, social, um, the the group of like the NWCs or urban league, the historically um, black um, institutions? What would you say in Cleveland is the driving leadership that is not getting any recognition in Cleveland? I'm not sure that I understand the question. You're, you're talking about people who are working on a grassroots level, or right. are you talking about some of the organizations? No, people. Are, I mean, they can be. A, yeah, people are working on a grassroots level. Because, uh, it, yeah. That's, that's yeah. Well, one of the was one of the people that that I thought deserves some recognition is someone that I tried to get in on the call, and and Brother Jamil represented him. But there's a brother named Khalid Samad, and he is with an organization called Peace in the Hood. And 
when things happen in this community, you know, in terms of police brutality or someone losing their lives in, in a, a situation that involves uh, a violence that was senseless or whatever, you know, time after time, it's been him who has shown up with, with his organization's backing to respond to the situation and to allay the concerns of, of the parties that have been involved. Um, you know, and there are some other people who are working on a grassroots level who, who tirelessly crusade for the rights of people in this community. You know, I, I, unfortunately, I think to, that to a great extent, a lot of these alphabet organizations have not served the community because they're beholding to corporate interests. And a lot of times they don't take the action that they should take because they're concerned about that banquet that they're going to have at the end of the year and the fact that they have to sell pro they have to sell programs and they have to place ads and so forth and so on. So then our true needs take a back seat. Now, it's not to say that they're not doing anything that's good for the community because they are. But it's just that in certain ways that they could be even more effective, but you know, money is always at the root of our ability to function, you know, to the extent that we could if we were properly funded. And it is a real struggle to even keep people in this community engaged in the organizations that could serve our needs. If I could, I could raise two, two, one more thing, um, Elliot. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Uh, I, would, I, would, I would like to, um, one, offer two books just as a, a point of reemphasizing what is just said, and that's um, by Karen Ferguson, uh, Top Down, The Ford's Foundation, Black Power, and the Reinvention of Radical Liberalism. Um, because what you just said, brother, is to me, um, we can see, and they, they outline in the study about how this type of group, because of their need, how they were how they were even created by other um, institutions um, to, to be able to be the kind of leadership that is non-leadership on one hand. And the other one is, which I read, I read a while ago, and, and I, I just found it again, which I, I kind of love because it raises the systemic reality of, of, of economic undevelopment or social economic undevelopment. That's Marion Marable how capitalism undeveloped black America. Because I think if we miss um, sight that this is a systemic problem, and as y'all raised earlier, even the question of why the poverty rate stays at, it, as, at the level it does or the uh, unemployment rate stays at the level it, it does, this is something that is um, systemic to the American system. And, and we can react to it all we want to, but uh, until we recognize that it's that, then it, it, we're not really um, working our way out. So for me, it's important to whether these um, to speak out to the ones who are these institutions that really bring them in our public discussion to light that are not beholding, um, whether as far as the ele uh, electoral class or to the corporate uh, philanthropist class to, to them, but are actually engaged in the community and raise questions of what kind of support what kind of what that image they need in order to keep them mobilized as individuals in our community and also to, keep, to let other people be aware these individuals are doing something. And I, and, I, and I think that that at least, you know, I guess that's my little offering for this moment of how it will deal with the question of the police state that 
move to being a militarized state, and as y'all said earlier, being actually trained from the military to deal with urban and thirst that is being financed by Homeland Security. If we don't realize, we can keep in focus that that's what's going on, whether for whatever they perceive may happen, then we'll be missing when things do move forward because of the natural frustration, especially as young people come and realize that they have been in, in um, the uh, Asian countries, as they've done in the European, Southern European countries, as they've done in the Middle Eastern countries. Young people being frustrated because of economic privation and taking initiatives that they're calling their spring, on and on and on. And at some point, this stuff is not going to just end where everybody just sits happily and will buy and get locked up and get shot down and everybody gets fine. So that's my contribution. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Thank you for your call, Richard, and your contribution. Yeah, I just want to piggyback on something that he said because mm-hmm. he, he brings forth a very significant point, and that's the Homeland Security piece. Because Homeland Security has played a part in the militarization of police departments across the country. That's why you got armored vehicles and, you know, and all these other apparatus available to these police departments because ultimately they want to be in a position to control us. And they've got, you know, I've some conspiracy theories that talk about the six FEMA camps across this country and that the caskets that they have stacked up waiting uh, for an excuse to use them. So that that's part of the, the overall issue that, that we need to be concerned about. But something else that he said kind of resonated with me, and that is the power of the black church. Because if you look at the amount of money that flows through churches on a weekly basis and what that money is being used for, this is part of the economic clout that we're missing out on. And if we weren't so focused on putting Reverend so-and-so in a brand new Benz and contributing to the 10 bedroom, 10 bathroom mansion that he's got in the suburbs far away from the church that is wherever it is, you know, we would be in a completely different position. Well, listen, Brother Mitch, you heard the advertisements uh, about the one million black uh, voters and contributors, black conscious voters and mm-hmm. contributors, and they, uh, yes. you talked earlier about us leveraging our vote and our dollars. That's, yes. that's something yes. that we haven't done since we've been voting. So uh, I wanted, I'll, I'll be sharing with you some of that information because I want you to take a look at it and get involved. But before we leave the program this evening, Brother Vince, I, I'm, I don't want to make any announcements yet, but uh, I'm looking forward to you being with us again in the future. That's what I'll leave it like that for the time being. But tell okay. uh, tell everybody how they can hear you, hear your program, uh, know what you're doing, because uh, you bring a lot of people to Cleveland. I don't know who you're bringing next. But uh, just give for crazy. Okay, <laughs> okay, just just <laughs> just give our listening audience anything that you want them to know. Any uh, Twitter handles, how they can see you on Facebook, listen to your program, whatever. Okay. Well, to, to those who are in the Cleveland area, of course, you can listen to us on 1490 WERE AM uh, on Saturday mornings at 11. Uh, you can also listen live on your computer by going to News Talk Cleveland 
dot com. That's newstalkcleveland.com, and you can listen live. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. The name of the show is 360 Info Network, so you can go to 360 Info Network on facebook.com and take a look at our Facebook page. Uh, we actually share articles that we get from Time for an Awakening radio. Uh, so uh, we're in a in a collaborative effort here, and that's one of the reasons that I'm so excited about the partnership that we're forging because we're speaking the same language. We're in agreement about a lot of the things that we talk about. So you can go to uh, 360 Info Network on Facebook. You can also find me on Facebook as Vince Robinson. I am actually Vince Robinson 18. If you run across a number of Vince Robinsons, I'm Vince Robinson from Cleveland. So, And then my Twitter handle, I'm not doing much with it yet, but I will, is the Jazz Poet at Twitter.com. And uh, you also have a, uh, a band, uh, Brother Vince. Yes, uh, I have a band. It's called Vince Robinson and the Jazz Poets. Uh, we're about to do, well, we're going to perform in the Emoja Festival uh, next Saturday at Boinovich Park. We're also doing a concert in a venue in Cleveland Heights called Night Town, and I'll be launching uh, my book that I just published. It's a book of performance poetry that I have written. It's called Got Words, and uh, it, it's on sale now. And your uh, your band, if, they, if the listening audience want to see some of the clips, Exciting clips. Uh, you, you've got several on YouTube. Right. You could just put in Vince Robinson and the Jazz Poet. Uh, then, then there are also the titles of the songs. So we, we have one song called Egypt. Uh, there's another song called Looking Ahead of the Curve. Uh, there are a few other tunes. Maracas Beach is uh, that Grover tune, as a matter of fact. I noticed you uh, have some Grover on your, your website. Okay. Um, so, yeah, just put Vince Robinson in the Jazz Poets in the search window of YouTube and you'll be able to check us out. <laughs> Listen, I'm looking forward to our collaboration because, you know, after night after uh, the Million Man March in 1995, it's been a concerted effort to shut down uh, conscious black talk radio on a terrestrial mm-hmm. level. Uh, I know right. you've noticed that. But uh, your program exists, and there's a few others that still exist on the terrestrial level. Is several on the, uh, you know, on the internet, and we got to start bringing things a little bit closer in, and so we can start having uh, the same voices, the same message to resonate throughout people throughout the country. I want to thank you for being with us. Thank you for sharing with us this evening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Right. Thanks so much for having me. Peace. Peace. I want to thank the listening audience for being with us this evening. Lively discussion as always. And we'll be back next week, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Are you watching your children playing after school? They seem to be so unaware I know, I know The things that they'll soon have to take care of
It is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.